On average, people spend about a third of their lives asleep, but how much do we know about what happens during all those hours? Here to help us understand the complexities of sleep for our latest Please Explain is Wallace Mendelssohn. He has decades of experience in research and clinical care as the former director of the Sleep Research Laboratory at the University of Chicago. He's also the author of a new book called The Science of Sleep, What It Is, How It Works, and Why It Matters. It's published by the University of Chicago Press, and I'm very pleased it has brought Wallace Mendelssohn to our show. Welcome. Thank you very much. And uh, to our audience, if you have any questions about sleep dreams or sleep disorders or whatever, give us a call at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Let's get right down to it. What's, what's happening inside our brains and bodies while we're asleep? Well, sleep is a uh, complex state that uh, in many ways is like a uh, symphony playing with a uh, not one but several conductors operating at the same time. Uh, in most cases, things work correctly and a person has a sense of having slept deeply and has a sense of feeling restful when they wake up in the morning. Sometimes, though, like any uh, orchestra, different sections can get out of phase with each other or there can be other kinds of failures and when that happens uh, people have clinical sleep disorders which are usually manifested by either insomnia or having too much sleep or sleeping at the wrong time or uh, having uh, unwanted behaviors or experiences during the night. Didn't scientists originally believe that sleep occurred when the brain was no longer being stimulated um, has has that view changed? Yes, that has. Uh, that was a notion that goes back to the 1940s. Well, I guess in some senses it goes back to ancient times, but in, in modern formulation, the 1940s, and the idea was that uh, the um, default state, I guess you would say, of a brain is sleeping, and that Stimulation from the outside uh, causes the brain to uh, be stimulated by a system called the reticular activating system, uh, which then leads to waking. It also has many other implications. For instance, uh, as one example, uh, some more sociological-minded investigators have suggested that the reason that... uh, uh, great artworks and music and so on began with the formation of cities was because of all of the stimulation of the reticular activating system from the, the typical noise of a of a city. Uh, be that as it may, uh, it really turned out that's not the case. Uh, it, instead of the brain being a kind of passive thing, it actually turns out that sleep is a very active state. It's not merely a default state that happens when uh, uh, there's not enough stimulation going on. Well, how aware are we of what's happening out in the outside world while we're asleep? When I was a kid, I lived near a railroad, and uh, during a snowstorm, the trains didn't run one one day, and I would wake up startled because the 322 wasn't going by. 
Um, so I was I would sleep through it normally, but obviously on some level I uh, was aware of those trains coming by at certain times. Yeah, that's right. It's like the Sherlock Holmes story of uh, where the important information is that there was not a dog barking. Uh, well, you've pointed to a very real thing, which is that when we're asleep, uh, we're not a, a rock, so to speak. We're, we're in fact, uh, very actively taking in information from the environment and uh, acting on it. Uh, I guess the classical story is a a new mother who uh, can stay asleep when a truck drives by on the street but awakens instantly when she hears the baby crying. Hmm. Uh, and that's just an example, but there, there are many, many examples. One of, one of the very interesting ones is uh, comes from uh, all-night photography of, for instance, couples sleeping together or uh, a pet like a cat sleeping on a bed with a person. And what, what you see in these kinds of films is very interesting, and that is that each partner takes in information and acts on it. So, for instance, if one person uh, puts an elbow into the rib of the other, if the other person moves and shakes themselves around that protrusion. Uh, similarly, uh, you can see a cat uh, moving, you know, to find a warm spot, like behind a set of bent knees, you know, as each person adjusts to the, to the other person. And then we're so, doing yeah. that while we're still asleep? We're doing it while absolutely sound asleep. So, in fact, during sleep, we, we very much can take in information, judge whether it's important or not, and act on it. Um, I guess another example would be of whether we, we determine whether a sound is important or not. So, for instance, in some studies, an investigator will just read a list of words and it doesn't wake a person up but then if he re if he uh, says the person's name which isn't a meaningful stimulus the person wakes up so we, we obviously assess information while we're uh, asleep how do we measure sleep scientifically with eegs emgs and eogs yeah well sleep studies uh have evolved a great deal since the uh, recognition of rapid eye movement or REM sleep in the 1950s. Uh, they are measured traditionally by what is known as a polysomnogram, and the emphasis is on the word poly, which means that many different kinds of physiology are being measured. Uh, in terms of determining the sleep stage, the things that you just mentioned are the three critical measures, one the brain waves or EEG, one the movement of the eyes or EOG, and one the tenseness um, of the major body muscles known as the EMG or electromyogram. Why do um, our eyes move while we're asleep? Are we, do we think we're, uh, are we following what's going on in our dreams? Well, that's that's an issue that's been debated ever since the 1950s, and, and it's a tough one. Uh, but what is very clear is that, that when we enter rapid eye movement or REM sleep, which occupies 
roughly 20-25% of the healthy young adults uh, sleep, the, the eyes have a very characteristic set of horizontal uh, back-and-forth movements. Um, what REM sleep is also the stage of sleep in which what we usually mean by dreaming occurs. There is kinds of thinking in non-REM sleep, but they don't usually have the characteristics we think of as dreams of being visual, of having a storyline, having emotional content. Uh, so some, some authors have speculated about the relationship to specific dreams, and it's not entirely uh, clear. I'm speaking with Wallace B. Mendelssohn, his book, The Science of Sleep, what is it, what it is, how it works, and why it matters. And we are taking your calls at 212-433-9692. All of our lines are full right now, so let's try to get to a couple of those calls. James from Manhattan, you're on the air. James, turn down your radio, and let's start talking. Okay, well, James, uh, we'll get back to you later. Uh, let's go to Gregory from Harlem. Hi there. How are you today? Okay. Good. I'm well rested. I wanted to. I wanted to ask a question, but because all my whole life I have been sleeping on the average of four hours a night. I mean, and then everybody keeps telling me, "Oh, you have to. You know, you have to have eight hours. You have to have this." I'm, I'm now well up in my age. I've been um, in my mid-60s, and I get four hours, and I'm good. And, and, and I do dream. I dream every night. Now, so, along these lines, Thomas Everson said that he slept three or four hours a night, and he claimed that sleep is a waste of time, a heritage from cave days. <laughs> well, but perhaps that is, or perhaps I just don't want to miss anything. <laughs> I don't know. It, <laughs> but I always wondered why. Wallace? Well, there's a wide variation in the amount of sleep that any individual needs in the population, and the uh, there's no right or wrong answer for this. The, the The average in a young adult is somewhere in the area of seven and three quarters hours a night, but there is again there is huge variation. Uh, history is full of uh, people who sleep over the usual amount, uh, and others who sleep much under. Uh, Edison was an example, as you say, of uh, of someone who slept relatively little, or at least claimed that he did. And, in fact, he had a very uh, interesting story. When he would interview people for a job, uh, he would ask them uh, how much they slept, intended to choose people who slept very little. And in fact, uh, that was such an important part of um, the uh, corporate culture, so to speak, that he would have guards going around the building looking for uh, employees who might be trying to catch a cat nap under the stairs. <laughs> and, and such. But, but there, there are also loads of famous daytime nappers, you know, who... Uh, who you know? Who talk in, about the glory of mapping across the day? Winston Churchill was a case of that. There are others who are relatively long sleepers, uh, like Einstein. But the the bottom line is just to recognize that there's a tremendous 
difference in the amount of sleep a person needs. And some people are so-called natural short sleepers who sleep only a few hours a night and feel just fine their whole life. There was a New York Times magazine from in 2016 that recommended segmented sleep, where you sleep in two blocks throughout the night and spend some time awake in the hours after midnight. Uh, in fact, they say uh, that that article said that throughout history, that was not uncommon. People would go to bed when it got dark. They'd wake up in the middle of the night. Uh, writers would write or people would do other things, and then they'd go back to sleep and wake up when the sun came up. Well, that you are correct that historically, uh, in a lot of cultures, it's very common to uh, have sleep have been in two pieces with a, a period of awakening in the middle. Uh, Is that any uh, healthier? I don't know of any reason to believe that it's any healthier, uh, and I, I don't think that anybody else does, <laughs> mm-hmm. does either, but they are right that at some points in history and in some cultures, sleep is often broken up into two halves. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, by the way, has a beautiful book uh, short story whose name is escaping me at the second in which he describes a life of having sleep, you know, in two pieces. Um, so that's indeed the case, but I, I don't think there's much evidence that, it, that one should or should not. We're going to take a little break here and we'll come back. we got lots of calls coming in. Uh, my guest is Wallace B. Mendelssohn. His book, The Science of Sleep, What It Is, How It Works, and why it matters. It is, uh, um, Mr. Henderson uh, has uh, more than 40 years of experience in sleep research and clinical care. He is a retired professor of psychiatry and clinical pharmacology, former director of the Sleep Research Laboratory, University of Chicago, and former president of the Sleep Research Society. His book is published by the University of Chicago Press. Stay with us for more. And we are back to today's Please Explain Look at Sleep. We're talking with Wallace B. Mendelson, author of The Science of Sleep, What It Is, How It Works, and Why It Matters, published by University of Chicago Press. And we're taking your calls at 212-433-9692. I'm going to get to some of those calls. James, we'll try with you again. James from Manhattan. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, sir. Wonderful guest. Uh, beautiful to hear about sleep as the poly aspect, you know, multiple symphonies going on at once. To, it reminds me of the compartmentalization of the brain. Uh, my question as well is uh, I get jet lag three or four times a year uh, visiting Europe, and uh, it's a pretty horrible thing. I've just finished my sixth decade of life. Uh, my next birthday's coming up soon. And... Um, I wonder if there's any uh, advice on resetting the circadian rhythm to try and, uh, uh, you know, uh, going to sleep earlier for a week or two, God forbid, uh, before I take off for Europe. And, uh, and then those, that usual problem of the Internet, the Facebook. I think so many people are addicted now. We stay up too late uh, looking at this uh, screen with lights and wires. And, and, and uh, we, we get, I've heard about diabetes and cardio events <laughs> from sleep deprivation. Of course, we know they use it as a... Is torture down Guantanamo Bay and stuff. But anyway, thank you so much. Okay, uh, a number of uh, yeah, you, 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 you brought up a number of different things. Uh, first of all, let's talk about people who look at their cell phones right before they go to sleep. Doesn't it make it harder to fall asleep? 
Well, there uh, there is a lot of evidence, particularly in children, that um, this can be an issue. And um, I don't have the studies right in front of me, but there's some, especially coming out of uh, Great Britain, that show an amazing number of kids, you know, have mobile devices of different kinds that they're using right before sleep, and that it is associated with um, sleep disturbance. Um, in adult, in everybody, uh, children and adults, another aspect can be that some of the wavelengths of light that uh, are emitted by the screens of mobile devices um, can suppress uh, the secretion of the hormone melatonin, which, uh, although it's not fully clear and has some controversy is, is in some complex way related to to sleep and sleep onset. Uh, well, doesn't light mean, play a role in how circadian rhythms uh, affect sleep? Well, it does. Uh, just to finish the mm-hmm. prior thought, uh, a number of uh, manufacturers and mobile devices know this now and have... Uh, programs that at a set time that the user can set in the evening change the screen color to be one that does not suppress melatonin as much. I, I don't want to mention brand names, but the very major uh, makers of, of, uh, uh, of, of different kinds of screens do this. Now, changing to the second thing you just raised, which is light, Light is one of the very important, what is known as Zeitgebers, which is means time givers uh, from German, forgive my accent. And it is a very important role in setting our day and nighttime clocks. Uh, there are many other uh, things in the environment, just noise, for instance, or sound, uh, social interactions and so on that also help cut uh, set our body clocks. But light is, is indeed a very important one. And one can do studies, uh, for instance, keeping somebody in continuous light or continuous dark or changing the hours of light and dark and show the, the influence on uh, how one sleeps and what time that, that one sleeps. And how does that, what, what impact does that have on, on the jet lag the, that uh, James was talking about? Well, that's a very interesting story. Um, And one example where this became to be recognized was uh, investigators many years ago observed that folks who uh, uh, travel to different places uh, on east-west flight, if they stay mostly indoors, you know, after they arrive, have a much harder time adapting to the new environment than people who go out and get in the sunlight during the daytime at their new geographic location. Let's take another call. Uh, this one is from Sue Prina from Brooklyn. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if you could explain what the recent um, relationship between Alzheimer's and sleep apnea is, and I'll take my answer off here. Okay, thank you for calling us. Has a link been established between Alzheimer's and sleep apnea? Well, I, I think that uh, 
we don't want to overdo it. But what we should, what it might be appropriate to say is that the influence of having uh, both decreased oxygen in the blood for many times a night, plus the slightly separate effect of multiple awakenings throughout the time due to apneas, does have effect on nervous systems. And some investigators um, uh, believe that, that there may be an association with um, uh, dementia. Uh, I'll tell you a related issue since we're on that topic that worries me a great deal is there have now been a couple of studies suggesting that uh, tranquil the prolonged use of tranquilizer slash sleeping pills known as benzodiazepines is statistically associated with a much higher rate of, uh, of Alzheimer's disease. Now, again, these are associational studies. But they they keep coming out, and the, those those make the very good point to me that um, the use of tranquilizers and sleeping pills can certainly have many benefits. But one needs to be aware that there may be long term implications of of their use. Uh, another reason I bring this up is is that. Uh, Again, I realize I'm moving a little more into tranquilizers than I am sleeping pills. But among folks over 65, right now in America, roughly uh, 9% of the population are taking these drugs, and many people are taking them uh, chronically. Well, let's start, get back to sleep apnea. Don't 24% of middle-aged men have some form of sleep apnea, and uh, women... Um, tend to get it when they're a little older, but what is sleep apnea, and uh, does it is the best uh, solution uh, surgical? Well, sleep apnea rep- it represents a situation in which during the night uh, a person ceases to breathe for multiple times. Now, the percentage, you mentioned 24 uh, percentage depends on how you define it and it gets into a whole story, but the bottom line is it's a very common uh, disorder. It has two major forms, one known as obstructive sleep apnea, in, in which a functional obstruction forms in the upper throat during the night, due to usually due to too much relaxation of the muscles that hold the throat open. And there's another form known as central sleep apnea, where during the night the brain periodically forgets to send a signal to the uh, diaphragm to, to breathe. But I let's talk about obstructive sleep apnea because that's by far the most common kind. But it's it's uh, can be associated with any body build, but it tends to be associated uh, with folks who. Uh, are overweight or heavier. Um, it, as you say, it's more common in, in men than women. Um, the important thing to know about it is that it's not just a disorder of sleep. It, it has effects on the body 24 hours a day. Uh, having untreated sleep apnea can, is associated with high blood pressure, heart disease, um, a very special kind of high blood pressure that occurs in the lungs. Uh, many, many different organ systems uh, 
it's associated with uh, daytime sleepiness, irritability, uh, depression. Uh, as a psychiatrist, this has been an issue very important to me. Is what we'll often find is if we have a patient with depression who isn't responding to the usual medicines, uh, I always encourage my students to check for sleep problems and sleep apnea because very often uh, if there's undiagnosed sleep apnea and you start to treat it, the same medicines that weren't helping very much for depression start to help and the person gets better. We have a caller who is, has a question along these lines. Hank from Newark, I here on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. My question is, it appears to me during a period of anxiety that I could go to bed with the sensation that things were basically under control, but in the morning, even before my eyes opened, uh, it, it seemed to manifest most acutely. Uh, and then dissipate as the day went on, and I wonder what happened in my mind overnight or my brain. You have anxiety and depression when you wake up. Yes, it's well, it's it's you know I have it, but it manifests most mm. acutely in the morning, as, as, as I awake. And um, uh, <laughs> let me ask you, uh, Professor Mendelssohn, uh, is that typical? Well. Usually when you're hearing about issues of anxiety and depression, it's leading to problems of falling asleep it is, you know, or waking up during the night you know, because of worries. So uh, sleep is thought in some ways good sleep. Healthy sleep is, is often thought to have a kind of healing power to help a person deal with anxieties. And uh, modern dream research... Uh, is composed of several major theories, and one of them involves uh, the notion that one of the functions of dreams may be to help take worrisome things that happen during the daytime and to um, sort of put them in perspective of the rest of a person's life and help to kind of come to grips with them. So, so in, in a sense, sleep is usually thought of a kind of a of a healing process, but. Um, why a person would have more anxiety right at the moment of waking up, um, I'm not sure I have a good answer for you, except to say that, you know, anxiety disorders are, are very difficult thing. And if, if also if a person is depressed, they can certainly feel uh, more depressed, you know, on first arising in the morning and I'm feeling a little bit better. No. Um, Day goes on. I want to ask you about a couple of other things before I get to calls, but I have to keep it quick. Snoring. Uh, do we all snore, and will we snore louder if we're sleeping on our back rather than on our side? Sure. Well, let me just separate the topic of snoring from the topic of uh, sleep apnea. Uh, snoring is very, very common, uh, and a subgroup of people with snoring are have sleep apnea, but there are many people who snore who, who, who do not have sleep apnea. Uh, again, it, it involves a uh, narrowing of the upper airway, uh, the main region typically being uh, over-relaxation of the, of the muscles that normally hold the airway open. 
it's you, it can be exacerbated by either genetically having a narrow airway or by uh, a narrowing due to things like fatty tissue, hence the issue of obesity and, and sleep apnea. Uh, position does matter, and snoring and sleep apnea are both usually worse uh, when one is on one's back. Um, indeed, a, an old folk remedy uh, is to have a so-called snore ball, which is a basically a tennis ball that one puts in the shirt pocket um, on with the pocket facing the back. Um, the story goes that Sears and Roebuck used to actually sell a special T-shirt designed like that. I don't know if that's true or not, but in any event. Um, Snore balls and other kinds of devices that make it uncomfortable when you lie on your back are uh, kind of an old folk remedy for snoring. And, and in fact, uh, there's certainly no cure. They are certainly no cure for sleep apnea or snoring, but they do help. Now, we don't have much time left, but I was curious, in fact, in 30 seconds, if you could talk about alcohol. It makes, us, it, it, makes it easier to fall asleep, but doesn't it also uh, cause us to wake up in the middle of the night? Well, that's absolutely correct. Uh, alcohol very definitely helps one go to sleep in the short term, but because it's broken down by the body so very rapidly, you have, in effect, a kind of mini withdrawal syndrome the same night you drink it. So you do any benefits that you get in the early part of the night you lose by paying the price of disrupted sleep. Wallace B. Mendelssohn's book is The Science of Sleep, What It Is, How It Works, and Why It Matters from the University of Chicago Press. Thank you so much for being on today's Please Explain.